Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the subscriber model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $60 a year, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $120 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Josh Marshall podcast with Kate Riga. We are just starting, we have just started off the Johnson era on Capitol Hill. And uh, I guess we're about a week in. And it's funny, on the one hand, it's a little hard to get used to going back to the sort of the old style of, of Congress when there's not, when, it, when, it, when Congress isn't shut down right? <laughs> when you just, you're back to having a Speaker of the House and you're not in this daily drama with Republican caucus meetings and day after day, uh, you know, each day you have a new one day speakership with some new dude who goes down in flames. So suddenly you have Mike Johnson, right? And, and, and everything seems kind of calm in a way, and, uh, you know, I was actually on Chris Hayes show last night and I was saying, you know, there's this funny thing because on the one hand, as we have found out quite clearly, Johnson is just as conservative as the most conservative Freedom Caucus dude. I mean, he is absolutely down the line on abortion, all of the gender, trans gay rights stuff. He played a key role in the Trump coup. So like he's no more, he's no less extreme than 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 those guys. And yet he's not one of these guys who's who's going on Twitter and posting like Pepe the Frog memes. Right? He's not antic like that. He is not he doesn't carry himself in a transgressive way like those people do. So I was sort of surprised that his his first gambit was this thing 
not only separating Ukraine and Israel aid, which is which was always going to be a pretty complicated thing for him to manage, given all the political cross currents there and everything. But he does this thing like, okay, we'll do Israel aid, but we're going to offset it by cutting IRS enforcement. And now just, I guess yesterday, kind of everybody had said this, but I think now we have a CBO confirmation of it. It doesn't save money. It literally costs money. It's more expensive to do this, unsurprisingly, because what we're talking about is cutting funding for the people who make sure the super, super, super rich people are paying their taxes. And it's kind of one thing when, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, Republicans are saying, well, we're, you know, we're not going to give you X billion dollars to hire a hundred thousand IRS Gestapo to break down our doors and make and and blah 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 blah. And now it's just kind of like, well, we're cutting cutting funding for the IRS. And you're like, you know, we're kind of in a global crisis at the moment. Like obviously people in the United States, I say the big majority of people in the United States are on Israel's side in what's happening right now. But not everybody. But I would say everybody agrees it's a crisis. Kind of regardless of which side of this you are on, it's it's a crisis. We've also got this big war in Ukraine. All sorts of crazy shit is going on. And there's this kind of he wasn't able to not go in for this kind of Republican neener neenerism, right? Kind of like, ah, you want that aid? You're gonna have to cut IRS funding. Ha 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 ha. You know, just sort of like, dude, I, I really think kind of even for people who uh I mean, it's kind of hard for me to say who the sort of the the people who are ideologically on the side of of not having taxes collected, but even for the people who kind of are into that kind of thing, I think it seems a little, I don't know, crass and unserious and sort of like, dude, dude, that's not where we are right now. Like, you know, again, some people don't think we should be giving more funding to Israel at all. But again, I think everybody gets it's a, it's a crisis. It's not the time for kind of like stupid little hostage taking games like that. So that's where we are. We're going to talk about the beginning of the Johnson era. And then we're also going to talk about, you know, there's some uh, elections coming up next week. Um, we get the first, it's it's not the 2024 cycle. You have a you know few states that have this kind of off-year um, off uh, elections. We got stuff in uh, Ohio and Virginia. So we're going to talk about all of that. But Kate, so you tell us, what have we seen? What is the mood? What is going on up there in, in you know, the inaugural week of the Johnson era? I mean, it's kind of, it's like you say, in terms of just the nuts and bolts of this would have been difficult because you've got you know, the biggest source of opposition to Ukraine funding comes from House Republicans. So you've got them wanting to separate out the Israel aid, which is, you know, near universal from the Ukraine aid. Um, and then also stuffing that Israel aid, like you say, with the IRS slashing, um, stripping out all the like the humanitarian aid stuff. Um, you know, so you've kind of got that going on 
in the House and then in the Senate, Mitch McConnell is very firmly on the side of Ukraine aid and wants the two things to be coupled. I think there's a growing awareness that if Ukraine aid is not part of this November 17th extension, that might be it. Like there might not be another opportunity because the Republican support for Ukraine is just waning really quickly. It's it's spreading. And then McConnell also said he wants to, you know, beef up U.S.-Mexico border stuff. This is you know right in line with kind of a big Republican talking point ahead of 2024. Um, you know, in terms of as far as Democrats think, abortion is kind of their winning message for Republicans. That's immigration slash crime. Um, so you've got all these kind of pieces swirling around, and like you say, the IRS thing was just almost had like a comical valence because as much as the Republican Party has changed in this Trumpist era and gotten away from, you know, the old priorities of the kind of dismantling of the administrative state, obviously a big part of the Republican Party still wants to do that. But that's, you know, the anti-regulation sect is not like the leading voice anymore. Like Matt Gates is not going to be out there trying to, you know, kind of dismantle these regulatory statutes or whatnot. Um, but the IRS thing, you know, that's decades old. They're in the late 90s. And then again, in like the mid 2010s, Republicans kind of ginned up all these IRS scandals to cover the these giant budget cuts, and which led to, you know, personnel bleeds and outdated technology, all of which, you know, who is that going to hurt? It's not the people who have W-2s whose income is more or less kind of transparent at a glance to the government. It's, you know, corporations and rich people who can afford lawyers and and use tax shelters and, and make all that stuff hard to find. So, and that's been really effective by the Republicans. A Treasury report from 2021 said that the richest 1% of Americans don't pay as much as $168 billion every year owed in taxes. So on the one hand, you've got this kind of credulous DC reporting thing of like, oh my, the CBO says that this is actually going to hurt the deficit, which is like, no shit. I mean, every single time they try to do this in the name of austerity, it's the same thing because cuts to the IRS mean shock of shocks. They can't do audits as successfully and they can't bring in money as successfully. So, of course, you know, you're going to have a huge drop in revenue. And of course, it's going to hurt the debt. Uh, the debt. And, they all, and, and they also just end up doing normal service in a much less good way. I mean, just again, just a kind of a personal anecdote. Um, a few days ago, my wife had to... Uh, get a tax ID, right? Just, just kind of a totally uh, normal thing. And for whatever reason, the online thing wouldn't work, right? The kind of the when you do it on the website wouldn't work. Um, and then uh, she called up and she was on hold for like literally an hour, trying to talk to someone. In, in any case, the point being, it makes ordinary service really pretty terrible, which. There's no, you know, that we get used to these things, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? You can, you can fund the IRS. So when you have a simple question, you can call up and say, what's the answer to my simple question or have a website that works. And I mean, there's a whole other thing that's not even part of this, which uh, one of our alums has actually been part of doing a lot of journalism on this. There's no reason you have to pay however many bucks to um, Intuit or, you know, the, the standard tax preparation software when you just have normal, simple taxes that you have to pay them. The IRS could just do that themselves. 
and have a little simple program that as long as your taxes are pretty simple, it just does it and it's free. And that's sim- that's easy because you know the vast majority of Americans, their taxes are totally simple. It's not complicated to do, but these tax preparation software people lobby to prevent the IRS from doing that. Let me let me ask you a couple questions about what you just said, Kate. So the first thing is I didn't even realize that what the Republicans are proposing, if I'm understanding you correctly, is just saying, okay, we'll give you the money basically for the Israeli military that you're asking for, but all the stuff for Palestinian civilian aid, no, we're not doing that. Is that is that right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> why am I surprised? But okay. <laughs> now the second thing is, so with McConnell wanting basically to get some border stuff in there. If I'm understanding this, he's coming at this not sort of in a poison pill posture, for lack of a better word, but probably stuff that that either Biden and the Democrats would agree with, or maybe even in some cases support, because by because the White House is getting into, you know, you can uh, have your own opinions about the mix of policy and politics behind it, but th- they themselves want to do more border funding now. Yeah, that's totally right. The Biden administration is taking a distinct kind of rightward step on border stuff because they're kind of getting killed in the polls on it. Um, and as of now, there's this like bipartisan working group trying to find border stuff that's relatively inoffensive to Democrats. Um, That's being headed up by this guy, James Langford, who's a senator from Oklahoma. It's still at the point where, you know, they're like keeping the Democratic names hush hush and everything. Um, But as as much as he's kind of talked about it and, and there's still no specifics out there, but he's saying we're not trying we're not trying to make a conservative wish list. Basically, they're trying to find stuff that can pass. The Senate is still in a posture of you know, the kind of bizarre uh, same pagedness of McConnell and Schumer and Biden on the Ukraine stuff. Um, so it, it, it's definitely a matter of their operating more like adults. This is this is kind of more or less how things were working pre the Johnson stuff. And then you're just going to have Johnson in the same position McCarthy was, right? Which is we had those initial mutterings that maybe they were going to let him get away with a clean CR and, and everything like that. You know, just suggesting that maybe they were going to go easy on him for these first few legislative priorities. But you know, the reason why the House version was this kind of tiny Israeli aid bill that had the IRS poison pill and didn't have the humanitarian aid and all that um, and decoupled from Ukraine. I mean, that's all bowing to the same faction, right? That's what the the right wants. Um, so that's going to be dead on arrival. It's going to be what we've seen before. They're going to have to decide when this stuff comes over from the Senate, this bipartisan stuff, you're going to have House Republicans out on a ledge alone again. And then what does Johnson do? You know, does he pull a McCarthy and kind of try to show his acquiescence to the hard right on every count, even when that means, you know, shut down legislative standstill? Or does he do the only possible off ramp, which is sane Republicans plus Democrats to, in this case, pass um, the aid packages, which throughout the whole speaker debacle, every single lawmaker who was just kind of every Republican lawmaker who was trying to say, you know, there's a sense of urgency, we got to get back to work. It was always pinned to the Israeli aid. So there is desire even on the right, even from the kind of recalcitrant House Republicans to get an Israeli aid thing passed. But 
if the first version is kind of this poison pilled up, it's a little hard to see what is his off ramp here without pissing off the same people who deposed McCarthy. Yeah, I don't really I I, I don't want to assume, oh, he's so dumb. How could he have messed up so bad? Because that, you know, that plays to my uh, you know, my assumptions and my desires at some level. But what I'm curious about here is it's very, I mean, it's very hard for me to see, are they really going to go to the mat over Israel aid with this when that is something that is, you know, kind of universally supported by them, at them being, you know, House Republicans and their supporters? Um, you know, it's one thing when they say, uh, all right, we're gonna, we don't, we don't mind busting through the debt ceiling. Fine with me. Or, you know, or, 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 or we don't mind shutting the government down. We don't, we don't like the government anyway. So shut it down, right? On things where usually these dynamics are something that Republicans are demanding, something really important to them, and their threat is they are going to kill something that they don't give a crap about, right? But here they do give a crap about it. Um, or, or even if you want to be cynical, their people give a crap about it. So I don't understand it. If if I were him responding to his political uh, agenda, I would say, great, we're going to push this Israel. You know, we're going to split the two things up. We're going to push the Israel thing through because. That's obvious. And then we're going to jack you up on Ukraine with IRS or whatever it is. So it's 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 weird. That's what I've been expecting him to do as well, because that puts the Senate in a genuinely kind of a tough position to say, no, we're going to turn back the Israeli aid because Ukraine aid is so important to us risking Israeli aid never getting off the ground. That's you know that's not a politically kind of clean shot to take. Um, and maybe that's what we'll see kind of in the next iteration. Now that this first version with the IRS stuff, you know, Biden already put out a veto threat. If this gets to his desk, Schumer says it's dead on arrival. Um, and the, and the Senate's kind of chugging along. I think also to some extent of the human side of this, like these past three weeks were so grueling and like physically and emotionally grueling that I wonder if even these hard right elements who love to fight will kind of be a little bit more willing to swallow something that comes over from the Senate, particularly, you know, it's going to have Israel stuff, which they're about. If it has border stuff, they can gin that up um, and then maybe like kind of save their fire for the shutdown stuff, which, as you says, as you say, has a hostage. They actually like shooting. Um, right, so this is right. just one that I, I wouldn't be all that surprised if after, you know, a couple of days of consternation, everything kind of works out. So do you have a sense of to the extent that we can get a feel for how people are reacting to Johnson after a week, do, do we, A, do we have a feel for that? And, and is, is this Israel gambit playing into that? Or is it kind of just too early to say one way or another? I mean, I think the, really the IRS thing has been the most surprising wrinkle so far, I think, because it's, 
you know, nominally completely unrelated to what we're talking about here. So it is just one of those kind of shoving your old Republican hobby horse. And, you know, it's, it's as if they had like tacked on and also we're going to slash Medicare. It's like, OK, <laughs> we're about to just have like massive funding fights. You know, you could maybe save it for that. But um, and, and you know, Democrats are giddy about that because now they can add to their arsenal you know, on top of endangering aid to the poor people in Israel, they're trying to enable tax cheats before the election. So I see that as kind of the biggest curveball coming from yeah. him. But otherwise, yeah. it's just it's hard to say, right? Like he's having he's he's having that thing where the trigger for writing a headline about Johnson is still like so light, you know, the, this bar is on the floor. So like every time he meets with anyone, it's like siren, 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 you know, Johnson is meeting with like Ron Johnson and Ron Johnson's going to support his plan, which is like, I mean, okay, cool. Like there's a reason we don't do headlines about what every single member of individual member of Congress does, right? Because it doesn't really matter grand scheme. Um, but, you know, ultimately the big test for him here. Is is he going to go for the kind of the easy strategic ploy of separating the bills and kind of getting that through the House quickly? Or is he not going to kind of get himself together in time and let the Senate put together their big bipartisan package and then have to kind of scrounge up a reason why, even though House Democrats and Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans are all on board with this, it's just kind of his unruly faction that America just got a three week display of its kind of inability to get its act together who are, are holding it up. Let me ask you another question. I saw a, a little snippet of video uh, this morning or last night or something like that. And it was part of what we are talking about here about the Senate, about the Senate and the White House basically being, you know, the, the entire Senate uh, on a bipartisan basis, basically being in sync with the White House on this stuff. And they had a little snippet of Mitch McConnell and he was you know, basically saying that. But what what struck me was he looked very feeble. He, you know, he 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 looked very feeble, and that made me. You know, I'm not trying to get into the gerontocracy and people shouldn't be so old and all that stuff that we see about kind of everybody. But uh, it it did make me wonder how much longer he will be in that you know, in that leadership position. Um, and I do hear rumblings of, and this is probably, I don't have a sense of how much this is in reaction to, you know, his diminishment uh, versus what Republicans are thinking these days. But I hear rumblings about the right of the Senate Republican caucus being a little less responsive to his leadership. So is I, I wonder how much longer are we going to have this model where you've got a bipartisan Senate, which, you know, basically has, a, has had enough of the nonsense of the people in the House and is, is kind of de facto on a lot of these things on the same wavelength as, as the White House. Is that, is that not going to be the case for much longer? Yeah, I mean... It's a little hard to tell because the first defectors are exactly who you'd expect to defect and people who 
we're probably most inclined to break with McConnell up until this point, right? Like you've got Josh Hawley saying he's not going to vote for any humanitarian aid in Gaza until all the hostages are released, right? So he's breaking with it. Ron Johnson is making noises about supporting Mike Johnson's Israeli bill, which is out of step. But it's like Ron Johnson, Josh Hawley, I mean, it's not an uber shock that they're breaking with McConnell, right? They've been doing this for a while. I think part of what's going on is the ones who would angle to take McConnell's jobs are like the Rick Scotts, people who like aren't really liked or considered very talented, but are you know thirsty all the time. Um, and you have the dynamic of like McConnell is, I think, by everybody pretty respected in terms of being good at his job. So there is a lot of tiptoeing around of, you know, Mitch has got to make the call. We're not going to force him out. But yeah, I mean, I think especially in this current climate, like admitting that you're on the same page as Biden in any capacity is going to be a wedge for some people in the party. Um, And obviously, I mean, he looks he just doesn't look good. He's like he's physically clearly deteriorating pretty quickly. Um, And I wonder hard to read these people's minds because as we've discussed with the Feinstein stuff and with all this kind of thing, it is really hard to leave these jobs when they've been your entire life, especially when you start to kind of get old and start to go downhill and you know that all that stuff will probably accelerate when you don't have, um, you know, a busy schedule and blah, blah, blah. Um, Not that I'm, you know, excusing it, but all these kind of personal factors are going in as well. But if you're him and you're thinking, you know, I'm not doing well, like you foreshadow, perhaps this could lead to unruliness among Senate Republicans, which I think he would find pretty untenable because I think everyone thinks that what has happened to House Republicans is extremely embarrassing. And the Senate always is kind of hoity-toity about how they're like better and more grown up than the House to begin with. Um, So with all this stuff kind of coming together, you'd think, I mean, you know, he wants to stay through 2024, probably not least because if you had to put safe money somewhere, you'd probably put it on Republicans winning back the Senate, which would be, you know, a nice feather in his cap kind of thing, especially after the kind of brutal cycles of late and all the recruiting problems. And the map is just so hard for Democrats that it really gives them quite an advantage. Um, But I kind of wonder, as we near that point, if the pressure is going to increase, you know, especially because you could do a little Congrats, Mitch. You know, you won again. You did an amazing job. You know, new leadership clamoring. You know, we'll see. It'd just be interesting, especially after the House Republican mess. You know, who would succeed McConnell? You know, they have a much more kind of stable leadership apparatus and everything. But there is a sense that he's kind of a singular talent in terms of, you know, his calculatedness and his kind of shamelessness um, and his ability to, to keep the caucus on the same page, even while the House has become, you know, a completely non-functioning group. Now, what do you, do you have a sense of how much either in just the mood of D.C. that you're seeing down there or, you know, what the Democrats feel? I mean, I see people rolling out statements from Mike Johnson about like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not trying to make Christianity the official religion. If you thought that, I'm not Mm -hmm. going that far. But like, you know, you're only good if you read the Bible. 
you know, just they're, they're, they're coming up. Do they, do you get the sense that they feel like they really have something here to kind of add to that sense of, I don't know, Republican extremism or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call that? Is that, is that getting momentum? Oh, totally. It's like so much harder to find a Democrat who gives you the, we're going to give him a chance. I hope he works with us line <laughs> than the, he's a psychopath. You know, he's, he's just Jim Jordan with a blander face on it line. And like right. part of that is just, I mean, strategy, right? It's this true. guy's like a bonkers. <laughs> yeah, he's a crazy yeah, Christian. Yeah. His record hasn't been vetted or plumbed. So every other day we're getting kind of a new nutso thing from him. Um, and then also, I do think even though everything in politics is kind of performance to some degree, Democrats are so, so furious about 2020. And I think any Republican who was part of the effort to overturn it, they generally, they genuinely have like a great amount of, uh, you know, distaste and contempt for. So that's, is shot through it as well. Um, and not least because his Christian stuff is like the perfect entryway to the abortion thing. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, as, as I think, as we all know, it's not really the case with a lot of the, you know, gay rights package. Certain things are just no one. It is, it is, there's no serious political force at a nationwide level anymore in this country about getting rid of gay marriage. That's done. Even people who, you know, it's, it's just done. When, when you, other parts of it, less done. Obviously, various gender issues, pronouns, trans issues, those are very contested in the country right now. Even if when you look at, you know, non-super inflammatory polls, it's a little less so. But abortion, as you say, that is, you know, that is just the, you know, the, the electoral battering ram for Democrats right now, you you know, there's almost no, there's, as we've seen, there's almost no state in the country where it's possible to put up much of a defense in a non-gerrymandered election. And, you know, the other point here is that, you know, we've seen that it's hard to overstate the extent to which this guy went from a total unknown semi-backbencher to Speaker of the House in like a day and a half, right? He's been there for four terms. It, you know, all the other people were at least were at least in the leadership. There was absolutely no time, not even not even just no time to vet him, but not even any time among Republicans for anybody to say like, okay, is this a good idea? Like, is is this guy going to be a going to be an effective Speaker of the House, or like, does this guy have baggage that's problematic for 2024 on 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 the first one you know it it's hard to say you know i mean some people come out of nowhere and they're a natural right they're they're great at it but and this is you know why i asked about his cultural politics because you know that is um what they have on him is really what in relative terms did Republicans in in 2022? You know, there was this broad economy, uh, a broad consensus that the economy was bad. There's still kind of a consensus, even though it's a lot less bad now, but whatever, right? <laughs> People think what they want to think. But, you know, you had, you had everything going 
in the Republican direction. And yet, what we saw on election day is that there was a big part of the electorate that just thought these Republicans are kind of scary. And like, I'm not satisfied with how things are right now, but they're breaking rules. And I'm just not comfortable with that. And his, he, he is just replete with positions and quotes and statements and policy positions that are just pretty extreme and very extreme on abortion. So it's kind of like walking back into the same, you know, I think I, I think I mentioned this actually last week on the pod, but I'll mention it again. On that episode of his podcast that I listened to the day after he was made speaker or whatever, again, in some ways, very smooth, very like genial, but he had this, you know, this, this anecdote, if you want to call it that, that he said to use as part of going to the other side and convincing them, persuading them, where he talks about if you're under 50, think of your high school class, think of your high school yearbook, think of your graduation, and remember that a third of your classmates weren't there because their mothers murdered them by aborting them. Now, you know, (laughs) I mean, I will assume for the sake of conversation that this that the percentage is right. I mean, okay, maybe, right? But people hear that, you know, if you are a true believer, abortion restrictionist at some level that is what you believe. But putting that as an anecdote, I think a lot of people think, dude, what like what is that? Like what are you talking? About? Like that's just kind of very jarring and weird and kind of like, wow, you're really in a different world. Like a th- the third of my classmates who were murdered. I mean, dude, enough. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to Mike Pence in terms of like his religious weirdness. I mean, it became a shorthand for him, right? Like the mother thing, you know, the not being in rooms alone with women, like it all his intense Christianity, except for the people who are also intensely Christian in that way, it read as like strange and off-putting and kind of, um, you know, made it easy to make fun of him, you know. Uh, And I think the same thing is going on with Johnson. And you can tell because he's done like three or four kind of media hits since he's been elected. And they've all been on Fox News. You know, they've mostly been with Hannity. Like there's clearly a really concerted effort not to be defined to the Republican base in these like early malleable days where kind of whatever gets traction gets traction. You know, it's almost like beginning of the campaign DeSantis. He just he couldn't define himself before everyone else filled in the gaps with his kind of personal idiosyncrasies. Um, and I think that's what's happening here. So in in one way, I think that Jim Johnson would have been the biggest gift to Democrats because he's an, a known entity. They, they don't have to struggle with the usual kind of asymmetrical how Democrats get stuff into the bloodstream versus it's so much easier for Republicans do, which will come into play here with, with Johnson as the the blank slate. But there's so much to work with. And every, you know, this is kind of like the height of the Santos thing. It's just like you're getting headline after headline after headline of, you know, comparing gay people to, you know, bestiality or the weird thing of the dinosaurs on the ark. Like there just seems to be 
quite a well that's almost completely unplumbed at this point. So yeah, you know, it's it's a race to define him. And if House Republicans kind of fumble the ball on the Israel aid, which is supposed to be the easier lift of the legislative stuff coming up, well, then it's not it's going to be not only see a kind of a Christian whack job, but he's an incompetent Christian whack job. Yeah, some of you know, it's funny, some of that stuff that is not, it's not offensive, really. To and I mean, if you're talking about where the dinosaurs were on the ark. I don't think anybody's offended by that, right? I mean, because because if you don't think there was an ark, it's it's just sort of like, you know, angels on the head of a pin. And if you do, well, it's a serious question, at least, you know, in terms of naval architecture. But you hear that and you're like, dude, what, what world are you living in, man? Because that's weird. And that's kind of funny and dumb. And if that's if that's what you're spending your time on, you know, what's up? Uh, one guy I know who I who is very who, you know, he he's my Republican that he's he's so level headed that I don't know why he's still a Republican. But one thing I saw him say was, you know, all this like, yes, you know, Israel aid and the IRS total, uh, you know, total pratfall, total failure, blah, 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 blah. But as long as it's long as it's playing well in the Republican House, he's fine. And I and that is right in terms of McCarthy's fate. Absolutely right. He just needs to keep them happy. Um, but out here in the larger political world, we don't really care about whether he gets axed or whether they bring in some new dude. What I care about is the 2024 election. And if you're out there being like a total weirdo and just do you know doing stuff that that like he seems to be off to 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 start with he may be fine in the house but that's not great for republicans in a national context which is obviously what you know what 2024 is all about so those are two you know both can be right he can be rocking in terms of his house stability but there's a whole other story besides that Totally. And in terms of kind of keeping the hard right happy in the House, the inevitable conclusion of that endeavor is, you know, a government shutdown is going to be those uh, leftover debt ceiling punishments kicking in and having huge cuts to the Defense Department um, at, at the time where there's all this kind of global instability and like concern about that kind of thing. So, I mean, the problem is that was McCarthy's strategy, too, until he came up against letting the country default or a government shutdown that almost certainly would have gotten blamed on the House Republicans. So if, you know, that's their most recent example, that's what he's got to kind of learn from and either mirror the strategy of or figure out some other end game. And you're totally right that appeasing the hard right is the path to keeping your job in the House, probably with the asterisks that House moderates have kind of showed us a little bit more backbone than I frankly thought they were capable of before this episode. Um, But like you say, stability in the House also kind of is a freaking gift to the DCCC who would look at that and be like, yes, please, like break everything while we're interspersing those stories with you being, you know, anti-gay and and anti-women and wanting to cut Medicare and blah, blah, blah. It's kind of the perfect package for them. But only cutting Medicare and and Social Security because you women were, were out there murdering all your babies. Yeah, because we're being really insufficient breeders. So that's a really winning argument in this climate. (laughs) Okay, so what's next? What are we talking about next? We're off to these elections, I guess. More of this scintillating content after these messages. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Back to the show. Are yeah. We so we have, ha- okay. We have two elections we wanted to talk about a bit because um, if we record on our normal schedule, they'll be already uh, done with by the time we record next week. So on Tuesday, we've got these off-year elections, but a couple with kind of national salience. And that's in Ohio. Uh, We've talked about on the show before this push to get abortion rights enshrined into law, which is really going to be make or break. Because if that vote fails, almost certainly the six-week ban will spring back and Ohio will, you know, for all intents and purposes, have no abortion access in the state. Um, And it's also tied to the fates of some of the most hotly contested rates, uh, races in 2024. Obviously, Sherrod Brown is kind of leading the ticket um, there, but you've got a, a, a couple really competitive Ohio House seats as well. Uh, Amelia Sykes has the, the biggest one. That's a slight Republican tinge that she managed to kind of win against all odds between 2022. And when we're talking about the House, we're talking about handfuls, right? So every race kind of matters. And all those Democrats have very assertively tied themselves to this, been doing door knocking and calls. And, you know, that wasn't always the the state of the, the race in Ohio. For many years, Democrats would kind of avoid talking about abortion. So it's also a sign of how totally that has changed. Or you also had a number of prominent uh, House Democrats, at least if you go back a few more years, who were anti-abortion. Right. Um, or kind of this middle ground that was, you know, pretty much anti-abortion. And and Ohio was always one of those places. It tends to be, you know, uh, one of these kind of, you know, maybe declining uh, industrial urban areas where you still have uh, sort of that part of the Democratic coalition, but very socially conservative. So yeah, it's a new day on on, on that front. So that's going to come to a head on Tuesday. And just the extent of how Republicans have tried to game this election is like, it really is staggering. The the most recent on this front is that you had LaRose, who's the Secretary of State, who is also coincidentally running against Sherrod Brown, which, you know, whenever we have those kind of Secretary of State conflict of interest, it really does smack you in the face. Like, should you really be in charge of elections right now? Um, But anyway, they, much like Virginia, which we'll get to next, did this out of nowhere voter roll purge right before this election. Um, And this one was odd because it really was kind of and still is a bit relegated to like local reporting. It hasn't really broken through outside of Ohio all that much. Definitely not in the same way that the Virginia one has, though. You know, Virginia yeah, I knew about has, the Virginia one, but I hadn't heard about the Ohio one until yeah. you just said it. I think it has. I mean, it has something to do with, I think, media outlets still acclimating to the idea that uh, abortion is no longer something they kind of silo off and, and ignore. Um, and also, you know, Virginia has greater proximity to bigger journalism centers. But anyway, so he removed about 27,000 voters off the roll, did not announce it so that kind of the the good government groups could go through, you know, do the arduous, like make sure that every voter who was removed knows about it and can put themselves back on. And when he did this in September, 
silently without telling anyone before leaving it to like a local outlet to just kind of figure it out. If people didn't re-register by the beginning of October, I mean, tough luck. You can't vote in this upcoming election, which seems really coincidentally timed to fit his needs while he has been actively barnstorming against this ballot proposal. Like no kind of the separation of church and state here, like he's full throttle kind of going after it. Um, but it sounds like at least from what we understand, even 20, 27,000 votes probably isn't going to be enough to That's the thing. Help. I think safe money here, or at least the people behind the push are very confident. The anti-abortion people are very not confident. And there's also a sense of, you know, they had this big August election where they were going to try to do some tomfoolery and move up the threshold, make it impossible to win. They scheduled it for, you know, uh, August when nobody votes, when people are away on vacation, when traditionally only kind of the most diehard reliable voters come out, which for a long, long time were conservatives. Um, And they got thrashed. You know, they got just beaten handily. And that was something that was like kind of hard to explain. You know, you needed multiple sentences to explain how that connects to the abortion thing. Um, and Republicans had a little more latitude to cloak it in like, well, you know, the uh, the Constitution is a precious thing and it should be hard to amend and blah, blah, blah. Now we have none of that, right? Like this is everybody knows what this is about. A gajillion dollars have poured into the state. It's being blanketed by ads. And you don't really need any kind of ginned up hyperbole because the truth of the matter is it's this or no abortion in Ohio. I mean, those are your options. And we've seen the abortion amendments at this point pass in far redder places than Ohio with far fewer kind of democratic strongholds in the state. So I mean, who can say, don't want to be in the prediction business, but the winds seem to be blowing in favor of the amendment. But it it just, you know, we still have to say the shenanigans around this were just so brazen and so they seem so heightened. And I don't know if it's just because we pay more attention now or if because post 2020, it's just all bets are off. You do what you can to win your election. But, you know, you had the trying to raise the threshold. You have the purging of the voters. You have the whole language thing where the ballot board rejected the summary, replaced it with something that was longer than the summary, but which, you know, is infused it with anti-abortion language like unborn child, which removed the pieces of it that refer to kind of, quote unquote, less controversial things like, you know, miscarriage care and fetal abnormalities and uh, things that it is harder to be horrible about. So they've just pulled out all the stops here and still see seems more likely than not that they're going to get pretty thrashed on this and probably give the uh, Ohio Democrats a bit of a boost in the meantime. Um, so, you know, that's that's the state of the game in Ohio. That'll be on Tuesday. Um, and you know, the other piece of it is just Rose has made himself the poster boy of this. And I have no idea why, because the odds were not good even kind of before things developed. Even even before anything, you just look at the recent history on special abortion elections and you're like, well, doesn't look great when, you know, Kentucky and Kansas are kind of coming down on the sides of abortion rights. But he has like embraced it completely. I mean, if if this does go down on Tuesday, Sherrod Brown is just going to use it as a battering ram for months. Yeah, that that's actually, it's interesting to me that he has stuck with that because as you said he is as far as we know he's he's the challenger to uh Sherrod Brown and Sherrod Brown 
has a really tough election on his hands for obvious reasons. Um, and I'm sure Sherrod Brown wishes this referendum was next was November 2024 and not uh, November 2023. I'm not saying he doesn't care about a year of abortion rights, but you know what I mean. Um, having said that, by continuing to make himself the poster boy for it, it does kind of give Sherrod Brown the ability to just say, well, He's he's Mr. He's Mr. Abortion Ban. Remember when he was, you know, doing this nonstop last year and and you know, that's not the same as having it on the on the ballot, but it's it's not bad for Sherrod. Um so I you know, I guess I give that guy the what, the admiration of the conviction of his beliefs, but I'm not sure it's gonna do him much favors next year when he's running against Sherrod Brown. We'll see. Right. I mean, it's just going to be so easy for Brown to say, you know, he tried to ban abortion in Ohio and we beat him. And now he's going to try to go to Washington and pass a national abortion ban. We're going to beat him there too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. The other one is Virginia, which has this weird system where it's off year and then the entire legislature is all up at once. Now, this is a big deal because Virginia is the only southern state that hasn't imposed any abortion restrictions post Dobbs. And Glenn Youngkin would very much like to change that. The uh, kind of big credulous treatment of Yunkin thing is all saying like he's pushing a 15 week ban and that's genius like that's going to change the abortion narrative because polls show that most people uh, that abortion support tends to drop off when you ask people do they want abortion to be protected through the second trimester and a huge chunk of that is anti-abortion messaging say you know calling 15 weeks a late abortion ban which it's not obscuring the fact that like 90% of abortions happen in the first trimester. But also, I just think it's bizarre that people are treating this like, what a stroke of mastery, a 15-week ban. Like when Lindsey Graham came out and said, we should have a national 15-week ban, every single Republican was like, gotta go, (laughs) you know, sprinting through the hallways to get away from it. Right, Um, right. And there does seem to be this weird thinking. I think it's probably just predicated on the polling, but that a 15-week ban will be totally different to people than like a six-week ban when honestly, I think based on the amount people don't know about abortion or I don't know about the particulars, I I kind of think the ban piece is going to be more salient than the exact gestational window piece. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And I mean, sort of for you could advance on the side of the argument that it's genius politics, the fact that the overwhelming number of abortions, you know, I I think it's up into the well up into the 90s percents of abortions happen within that 15 week window. So if you wanted to make that argument, you could say, hey, this is every, you know, you get an abortion, you get an abortion, you you know, abortions for everybody, just these little few abortions were, were you know, uh, getting in the way of, but people don't, People don't think in those terms. Look, eh, that's about enough abortions for me. I can I can work with that. That's just not. It's and every poll that I have seen, and not polls where you're trying to get a result that you want for you know for whatever reasons. Pretty much every poll that I have seen has made clear that the whole um, kinetics of the debate is ban, no ban ban, you know, that's all there is. Um, and it's just, it's just not there. So it, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. 
I mean, it leaves you in, I was reading this one article that had quoted a Republican who's, you know, running for one of these legislative seats, um, who's, who's supportive of the 15 week ban. And the, like the sentence construction is like, you know, so-and-so is supporting a 15 week ban, quote, I don't support any bans. You know, I think uh, 15 weeks is, an, is a reasonable window. And it's like, all right, dude, you're fighting a losing battle there. Like you're not going to get people to stop calling it a 15 week ban. Right. And if your kind of strategy is predicated on that level of rhetorical parsing, I think you're kind of doomed on that front. Um, but the other reason why this is getting all kinds of attention is Everybody knows that Youngkin wants to run for president one day, right? It's like the worst well-cupped secret. He's he's desperate to fulfill these higher ambitions. And if he, you know, his 15-week plan is successful, he's going to get a, a ton of write-ups about, you know, he's the first Republican who figured out how to like defang the Dobbs effect, right? And then you also have, as as we were discussing just before we started recording, he's got a quite a high approval rating. He's in the mid-50s, um, which is pretty staggering, you know, when you compare it to you know, Biden is like locked in the low 40s. I mean, that's a pretty big difference. And so I think the reason why people have been a lot more bullish about Ohio than Virginia is we scant polling as usual, right? But the polling shows it to be quite tight. You've got a governor who's generally pretty well liked. Um, you have his fundraising juggernaut abilities, like he has brought a ton of money into this race. Um, and the Republicans are desperate to show that abortion isn't going to cause them to lose forevermore. So you've got right, all that right. kind of working. But then at the same time, Republicans are being like fairly candid about the fact that the state Senate is going to be a hard is a hard map for them to win on as Democrats control it now. Um, Republicans have the state house and none of this really matters unless they get a trifecta. Right. Because the Democrats are going to block in whatever um whatever chamber that they hold on to if they do. So, you know, that's kind of this, the state of affairs in Virginia. Um, and I think also it's a, a weird off your election before a gigantic, really meaningful election. So everyone's going to be looking to it as a bellwether because it's only recently a blue state with still some kind of purple tendencies. You know, it's, it's not and it's got... North Virginia, which is very basically D.C. suburbs, right? But then South Virginia is like kind of a bona fide Southern state. So, it, it, I mean, it's not the worst place to look when you're trying to kind of have any data point to hold on to a year out. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the status there. So that's let, let's, let's dig into this a bit, because this is this is what I am. I, I wouldn't say I'm confused by it, but but has my attention that, as you say, it is a basically a blue state now although only recently you it it's gone pres it's it's gone presidential in a num you know the last several elections uh sort of you know famously it went for clinton even when she was losing those those you know industrial midwestern states um it's only relatively recently that democrats have managed to they managed to get the state legislature um it's been uh about 12 years, I think, since there was a Republican governor. Youngkin got in, sort of, you know, squeaked by uh, in the, you know, first, first, um, first election uh, uh, of the Biden era. And yet, but, but, you know, it's, he is supporting this 15 week ban. So it's a little surprising to me that, at, you know, that with a Republican incumbent, in you know in the in the governor's chair that it looks like he's he may get this not that it's necessarily likely 
but people aren't saying, yeah, no way, it's a blue state. He's 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 you know he's toast and everything. I mean, you sort of alluded to that he's raised a ton of money. I mean, I guess I'm wondering how much has is how salient is the abortion issue in these in these state campaigns in the state. I mean, every single Democrat is running on it. So that's what I, think, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I also think there's a piece of this which is causing the caution and the coverage. I think Yunkin has a little bit of a he's being handled the way that Trump was, which is after he won in 2016. For so long, Trump has been treated like can't pull him. He's a political anomaly. He'll win no matter any of the traditional factors or crosswinds, right? Like he's Teflon. I mean, it took so many losses before people started questioning that narrative. And I think Youngkin is a bit of a beneficiary of a similar dynamic, which is like you say, the first election under Biden's tenure. So it was a big, you know, the the mini backlash election, you had him and then you had Phil Murphy in New Jersey, like have a surprisingly hard time, um, even though he did get reelected, but it was quite close for a state like New Jersey. Um, And that got everybody kind of like, oh, man, tides are turning, right? The pendulum swinging back. opinion setter. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And Yunkin was the beneficiary of that, which also, you know, redounds on him that he was the winner, that he changed the tide, that he was the candidate that is going to be this new vanguard of Republicans and kind of carve a path in the post-Trump era. That's not just these desperate efforts to, you know, go back to like a, a Nikki Haley kind of Republican, like he's supposed to be new. Um, and right. I think all that shininess still clings to him and in some way gives him a sense of... um in uh, kind of inevitability that he found a way to kind of change dynamics before and maybe he'll change them again, even though much like Trump, it's never, it's almost never just the candidate, right? It's like the conditions are right and other things kind yep. of work to their benefit. So I, I think there is kind of a sprinkling of that in here as well. Interesting. Well, I guess we'll, we'll, we will probably, I mean, barring uh, big news that has us doing a special edition of the pod, which at this point, I'm not sure how can you bar that since (laughs) (laughs) the news menu is getting pretty cluttered. Um, But uh, barring that, we'll know the ele- we'll know the results. We'll be picking through the results uh, next Wednesday. I, you know, I'm 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 very curious. Uh, it it does seem like um, a pretty powerful cudgel for um, for uh, Democrats to use. Having said that, it's also it is also a good measure of the fact that an election in which one side has a position on abortion is not the same as a literal referendum. You know, you Mm -hmm. can say it's a referendum on abortion, but it's not truly a referendum on abortion. There's other issues. There's there's uh, even if even if every Democrat is running on it, there are some voters who kind of like that's just that's not what's coming through. So it'll be interesting to see. And I do. I think there's no question I mean, one thing that is interesting to me is you could imagine a scenario where Youngkin manages to pull this off for whatever series of reasons, and then suddenly every Republican nationwide is lining up for, ah, 15 weeks works. That's our message for 2024, mm-hmm. in which case I think you might have some Democrats who are said, you know, Sucks for Virginia, but okay, we'll take it if that's exactly. if that's what you drew from. If that's the lesson you drew from it, but it'll be, but it will be, uh, it will be very interesting. So I guess that's what we have for this week, and yep. uh, we'll be back next week, if not sooner. 
to uh, pick over the entrails of the election uh, elections in Ohio and Virginia and uh, whatever other global crisis has broken out <laughs> over the next week. So, Sounds good. Yeah. See you then. This week. Talk to you later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.